So I was writing prompts that were more like computer programs, really in terms of saying exactly what I wanted the output to be, the deliverables, the information I wanted it to process, all of the rest. And I started to develop ways of doing it that I wasn't seeing other people doing. And I thought, well, I better turn this into some kind of framework. And at that point, that's when I contacted LinkedIn Learning because I've already got some courses there and said, do you fancy a course on ChatGPT? on how to write prompts, and they were like, yes. Hi, welcome back. My guest this week is Dave Burrs. With over 30 years' experience in creativity, technology, and innovation, Dave has become a highly respected and sought-after public speaker and trainer of creative minds. David's taken everything he's learned over the last three decades to become a polymath who shares insights into the worlds of creativity, innovation, and now AI. Currently, Dave is the most popular AI and prompt engineering instructor on LinkedIn Learning. His forward-thinking approach has put him at the forefront of the AI wave, allowing him to balance practical approaches with advancing technology. As he says, in a world of myopic evangelists and apocalyptic naysayers, his guided, sensible approach helps people embrace the AI future with their eyes wide open. By stripping away the BS of AI, he's an expert in explaining how it can really add value to an organization and individuals. He's also an author with award-winning books that include How to Get to Great Ideas, A User's Guide to the Creative Mind, Friction and Iconic Advantage. Each give readers insights into how great ideas can transform businesses. That's why his next book he's currently working on will explore the best ways to use AI in business. Now, over to Dave. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. You want to kick it off? Sure thing. Here's the theme tune. something else yeah suitably texan <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah it's wow like the blues when you're in the south that's incredible wow where, where did that all come from always wanted to just be a musician and that was it as my teens i was growing up i was learning the guitar and i just learned every instrument i could pick up by the time i was 18 played about 20 different instruments and i then started to play in studios and i would just go, I think this track needs a mandolin. So I'd go and get a mandolin and learn the mandolin. And <laughs> so there's no barrier. You can pick up any musical instrument and then sort of adapt. Pretty much, except... Piano? Uh, uh, yeah, play piano, yeah. Except, except drums and saxophone. Oh. That's amazing. <laughs> well, where did, it, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> well, yeah, I got bored of music. <laughs> well, we're going to come and talk about the journey you've been on. But given that you were one of the early guests way back in the yes. day, filmed in an impromptu space in New York <laughs> in Tribeca, which I, I hate to think about what the sound quality was like back then. We had a problem with the studio. But it's great to have you back again. But a lot of people won't know who you are or what you've been doing. No, most So maybe, <laughs> maybe you could just start giving a little bit of an overview of who you are where you've come from, the journey you've been on, and before we get and talk about the incredible, I'd say, I'd say pretty significant pivot away from working in advertising yeah. to doing what you're doing today. 
Yeah, well, you know, every, everything goes back to being in Scotland. And the whole journey, being interested in creativity and innovation, came from a trip to Helensburgh on a wet Saturday when I was about six or seven. And my mother used to live in Helensburgh. Which is west coast of Scotland. Yes, west coast of Scotland, very wet. <laughs> and the, uh, my parents took us to a museum, the John Logie Baird Museum. So John Logie Baird was the inventor of television. And the museum was terrible. It was awful. But I just remember being absolutely stunned that television had been invented by a Scotsman. And I sort of couldn't get my mind around that. And then my parents said, well, yeah, you know, Scots invented lots of stuff, invented tarmac, invented logarithms, invented like Scott invented the telephone. And then it just, to me, I wanted to be, as a kid, that was my ambition, was to basically be an inventor, to be a creative Scot. Wow. <laughs> and that then sort of led to trips through the creative industries from being a, a musician, accidentally became a stand-up comedian, then get into advertising. Accidentally became a stand-up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then get into advertising, and that was where we met. Uh -huh. So, my goodness, 15 years ago, yeah, more than that. Yeah, <laughs> on the streets of Cannes. Yes. Yeah, uh, the ad festival, uh, which we won't talk about. So, just, just one thing, the great inventors of Scotland, I didn't realise that logarithms were as a Scotsman. Yeah, yep, invented in Edinburgh. Yeah. Wow, it's probably have to put in the show notes some of the, sort of the great Scottish <laughs> inventors um, for our English friends. Um, they sort of make a point. So that journey into advertising, because I mean, that, like I say, is where we met. But around probably maybe about 15 years ago, you were beginning to sort of pivot away from that. You yeah. became quite fairly prolific as an advertising person, as a writer. Yeah. And, you know, everyone wants to write a book, but you've actually gone, gone out there and done it on a number of occasions and written yeah. about creativity and ideas and the power of ideas. Yeah, that was another accident. I never, I never intended to write a book. So the, the first book that I properly brought out was A User Guide to the Creative Mind. And that was about 10 years ago. And that was, a, again, it was a mistake. I, I only wanted to test a new piece of software, which was Apple's iBooks author. And so I... I thought, well, when I was at Crispin Porter, I'd, I'd written this guide for my creative department, which was how to come up with ideas when you're stuck in a rut. And this was like the bottom drawer emergency thing to pull out if you find yourself getting stuck. And I, I took that and thought, I'll just take that stuff and I'll put it into this Apple's iBooks author just to test it out. And then I realized, hold on, this is actually pretty good. And I expanded it and turned it into this book over the space of a week. And there was videos in it, there was case studies, there was all sorts of stuff. And then I went to publish it and Apple said, you need your US tax number to publish. I didn't have a US tax number. And I was just like, fuck you, Apple. <laughs> and and in, in complete annoyance with the process that I could not get past this, I thought, well, I'm going to go completely analog. And I brought out the book in paper, never expecting anything to come from it. And then within a couple of years, it was on the reading lists of all the top advertising schools. And it's gone on to be quite a successful book for me. And, and that was self-published. That was self-published. And then I, I brought out the second edition just a couple of months ago. So that's got 50% more in it. <laughs> yeah, um, it is interesting that we, I mean, I've talked endlessly with people from the ad industry and people work with about the, we all talk about the power of ideas and the power of our creativity. Yeah. But usually it is directed towards solving client problems rather than your own through your own sort of 
self-expression in directing your own creativity for the benefit of the individual. But few people have got few people in the industry have gone out there and produced things. Whether now people like Graham Fink obviously have gone on to be great artists yeah. and painters, but there aren't that many. What's the barrier to people actually sort of expressing their own creativity and going out there? I mean, you've done it. You've obviously confronted yeah. the sort of the doubts, the fear, the uncertainty that faces any creative person. Yeah. I mean, I don't, want, I don't mean to be disparaging to my old industry, but I don't think a lot of the people in creative departments are actually as creative as they think they are. I don't think I was as creative as I thought I was. And certainly when you find your, that your, your job is to fill a rectangle of media space, whether that's with moving image, whether it's pixelated, whether it's got ink, you know, that, that's your, your job. And I, I get frustrated with that. And I guess because I've got ADHD, I'm like, I want to try the next thing. I'm off in different directions. And I'm insatiably curious about stuff. So I, I'd always had things going on the side. So I had businesses going when I was doing, when I was working in advertising. Was at one point, I was a breakfast show DJ. <laughs> While I would do the breakfast show once a week and then go, it was, it was when I was working at McCann. And I, I, would, I would then go to McCann and do my creative director job. And, and then I had a fashion company at one point. And then I had a, like a charitable organization at one point, like a social enterprise. So I always had things going on the side. And I guess it was, it was that I've always been creating outside of the industry. And I've never kind of like confined myself to advertising. Why was that? Apart from, as you say, you're a curious person and you've obviously, clearly there's an intersection between your creativity and technology. iBooks being a perfect example of that, always early to look at the possibilities of new technology, the creative possibilities of new technology. But all these things, was it because you weren't really certain about ad industry and you're always just scratching a new itch thinking this might be the journey I need to be on rather than the one that I'm currently? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was quite settled in, in the ad industry for a long time, but I always needed that itch scratched elsewhere because just doing adverts didn't completely give me satisfaction. I needed to be doing other stuff. And uh, I guess I'm... Creative th stuff, you mean? Yes. So, yeah. so that innate creative desire to express yourself either through music, comedy, being a DJ, whatever it is, <laughs> it, working for clients in the sort of the, you know, selling shit to people, money they don't have, yeah. uh, things they don't need. That we've all done and felt guilty about wasn't yeah. really sort of satisfying that sort of that creative itch inside you. No, and I find that all the stuff that I did outside always helped the advertising work that I did. So I would learn from what I did outside of outside of the workplace, and then the agency would then benefit from it because I had a much bigger understanding from playing around. Mm. So just give a quick sort of before we get in, we're going to talk about how your move away from traditional advertising and the mainstream industry to actually sort of producing books, to being a noted trainer, a speaker, a LinkedIn learner, and what are you doing now with AI? Before do, what were the, so the first book was just as you described about ideas. Then you did another one in collaboration with- Sun Yu, Sun yeah, Yu yeah, yeah, my friend Sun, and he was looking for a ghostwriter. And we started working together on this book and within two weeks he was like no you're not a ghostwriter you're a co-author this is this this is leading to something that's better for both of us so we we really 
wrestled with it and we created Iconic Advantage. And it was uh, a book that was a bit, bit about branding, but it was really about the important thing is, is, is the doing, not just the talking. So Iconic Advantage, it was how to, be, how to become the product that people think of when they think of your category. That's the whole Iconic thing. So we looked at the strategy of how to do that. That book was quite popular, picked up some awards, and it was fun to work with soon. So we did another book, which we brought out last year, year before, called Friction. And that was about the fact that we've been frustrated over years with like, particularly UX people being all about, let's just remove the friction, remove the barriers. It was just about trying to shorten the trip from here to here. But we've reached this level now where we've removed the friction so much that things mean nothing to us. Because if you think of anything that means something to you, whether it's your relationship, whether it's your, your car, where you live, skills that you've developed, sporting abilities, it's all taken effort and friction to get there. That's the stuff that means something to you. And we are removing meaning when we remove hurdles. So we looked at strategies to add a little bit more friction. And I brought in my neuroscience passion to go, well, for these to be good, they have to release happy chemicals in the brain. So they have to release dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, or endorphins. So what can we do that release these chemicals in the brain? Because that's then given, going to give people a more pleasurable experience. And when you do that, people will want to come back and experience that again. It's funny. A recent guest, we were talked about the IKEA effect. Yeah. That the great thing about IKEA when you build furniture, there is friction in it. There's friction when you go to the store in terms of getting to the end and getting to checkout, but there's also the friction mm -hmm. in terms of the building and the frustration. But the satisfaction when you do it yeah. leaves you, well, it releases the chemicals, as you say. Yeah. And, 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 and so it's actually interesting that, you know, although we all strive and all desire an easy-to-assemble piece of furniture, mm -hmm. there is something inherently satisfying when you finish your billy bookcase or whatever. Yeah. So when they did that study... They got people to do something quite simple. It was build a little Ikea box. And then at the end of it, this is the bit that really fascinated me, is they offered people the chance to buy the piece of furniture that they just made, or they could buy a professionally put together piece of furniture that didn't end up with somebody with three bolts and they didn't know where they went <laughs> at the end of it, the wobble slightly. So, so they could either buy a professional, professionally created uh, piece of furniture or the piece of furniture they put together themselves. And people were, I believe it was about 60%, they were willing to spend about 60% more on the thing that they had created than the professionally put together piece. It's extraordinary. I, I, that stuff all just, it just blows my mind. <laughs> mm. Okay, so you created that book. We've been in touch over the years, although I've been in the US and New York and Austin, and you've been in London, but you're always traveling around the world doing, yeah. on the speaker circuit. Just give us um, a little bit of background as to when you started to become aware of the opportunity, the huge creative opportunity that AI was unlocking mm. before we get into talking about the specifics of what you're doing. Well, I've been aware of AI for a few years and I'd, I dabbled with things. So I'd looked at when OpenAI had their ChatGPT, I played with ChatGPT3 in the past and, and didn't really get it, didn't think that much of it. Last year, I started to do an art project using Midjourney and Dali and Stable Diffusion and whichever other text to image generators I could find. 
And it started off just messing around with them, where I went, okay, let's uh, give me a, a, a lino cut, because I was doing lots of lino cut art at the time. Give me a lino cut of a bald man with glasses and stubble. I hadn't grown my beard at that point. And it started to give me these images that were just unbelievably good. And I thought, what if I just take these images that have been generated by AI and I actually do real lino cuts of them? So the whole thing that I was doing then was turning this traditional art process on its head. So normally it's the human that comes up with the concept, the design, and then technology helps them make it happen. This time it was technology that had come up with the image and then the human was helping make it happen. So by turning it on its head, I then ask this question to people, is this art? You know, th this is... This was created by AI and all I've done is execute it using an old fashioned printing process. And overwhelmingly I asked this question in the, the talk I was doing yesterday and 100% of people said, yes, this is art. And it's like, why is it art? How is it art? I, I don't know, I, I'm questioning whether it's art. But because I was doing all of this stuff using AI to try and feed it into the, the graphic art that I was doing, then ChatGPT came out and as soon as it came out, I just threw myself in into the whole thing. And I could see that people were using it wrong from the very beginning. And I, and because I can code, I was looking at it and going, well, yeah, you need to think of writing the prompts in more of a sort of coding fashion. Because if you understand what this needs to do its job, and you understand how to write code to get a computer to do its job, all I'm doing now is writing in English to do the same thing. So I was writing prompts that were more like computer programs really in terms of saying exactly what I wanted the output to be, the deliverables, the information I wanted it to process, all of the rest. And I started to develop ways of doing it that I wasn't seeing other people doing. And I thought, well, I better turn this into some kind of framework. And at that point, that's when I, I contacted LinkedIn Learning because I've already got some courses there and said, do you fancy a course on ChatGPT on how to write prompts? And they were like, Yes, please. Because you were the first person I encountered, and I've been tracking OpenAI for a few years, and one was always waiting to try and get access yeah. around the early releases and never did. But then I encountered your, your sort of posts and your course about prompt engineering, and I was like, what's this prompt engineering? I've never yeah. heard this term before. <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. It's, it's, it's just it's a new career, I guess, for people. And as much as I teach it, I don't want to do it. They want it to be a job <laughs> because my job is to, to go out in front of people to work from where society is, to find the new stuff, to learn from it. So run the experiments, learn from it, and then bring back my learnings to, to people to help bring them along in the journey. So that's kind of what I see my job as being that I'm, I'm really, I'm an explorer and experimenter. And my job is to do the hard work to learn from stuff so that I can make it far easier for other people to go down that path. I think it's fair to say you are probably a bit of a polymath, but yeah. you seem to, I mean, as you say, you're at the heart of everything you've done is always creativity, but your interests in technology, engineering and art, it, so it does span sort of multiple sort of disciplines and that ability to solve problems and see things through a different lens does lend itself to your, I suppose, just your, refreshing creativity in terms of this being a perfect example of it. I understand that you don't want to be a prompt engineer, but clearly, before we get in and before we talk about 
what the future holds for people and humanity in the world of AI. You've gone out there, you've created this framework, you know, it helped open my eyes to understanding how to sort of think differently about prompts for using, whether it be OpenAI's GPT 3.5, 4, or Anthropic, Claude, and other sort of AI platforms. Why was it important for you to actually put out a course on this? I could see, well, to me, what I realized very quickly with AI was that this is a turning point in history. So I, because I've been teaching innovation for so long, very often I, I give people at history lessons about innovation. And, you know, all the way back to sort of prehistory, when we can see that about 30,000 years ago, we had this sort of creative explosion with Homo sapiens. We started to develop clothing and jewelry and language 30,000 years ago. And I was always fascinated with that. And, and from that very beginning, as we started to create things like stone tools and the wheel, what we were doing was we were creating tools that would help people with their doing, with the actions they take. So it's everything that we've been doing with innovation has been all about doing. So when, you know, the, the, the Luddites were smashing up the mills, it's because the mills were taking over the doing, the action of creating the, the cloth. I mean, the doing as well, computers have been taking over the doing, the doing of, of, of doing mathematics, the doing of, of, instead of typing stuff out, it's been taking away manual effort. And this is the first point in history where we have got an industrial scale solution that's not about doing this, about thinking. Because it's kind of like two modes we have as humans. We've got doing and we've got thinking. And, and, and a lot of people neglect the thinking side and they focus on the doing. You know, that, that's probably most people in most jobs. They're, they're focused on doing, not thinking. But this is the first time that thinking has been properly addressed on an industrial scale by technology. So, so to me, that is the exciting, both in a positive and negative way, thing that comes along because it, it's going to totally change the, the direction of humanity. Uh, so, so when I realized that, I realized the importance of it. And that's why I wanted to help people use this tool properly. Mm. So I wanted to learn how to use it properly. And some of the stuff I was seeing from our old industry was people saying, this is terrible. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's rubbish at creativity. It just can't come up with ideas. And then you go, well, written your prompts wrong. It, <laughs> it is interesting. That I think when we were talking uh, yesterday and you gave the example of when we're working in advertising, that when you want a creative solution, you write a creative brief. And those creative briefs don't just get churned out overnight in a matter of minutes. So often they take weeks of thought and consideration to understand what is the nature of the problem? What is the ideal desired outcome? Or what is the transformation that you want to actually affect through that creative brief? And then that creative brief is broken down into, depending on the agency in question, can be anything from sort of the core insights, it can be the desired target audience or target customer or consumer, whatever language you want to use, the core proposition, the support to that proposition, potentially the media in which you would deliver the message and a whole number of other sort of aspects in terms of tonality. So that's what goes into making an ad. So clearly it is important for people that do want to actually tap into the creative potential of these AI platforms is to start to think about how you brief it or how you prompt it. If you give the AI 
less information than you would give a human to do the same job, you cannot expect the same results. And so that's a really big thing that we have to brief, give the context, give the information. So I ran a test about three weeks ago when I was filming one of my LinkedIn learning courses. And there's a brief that I've given humans for the last 10 years. And the brief is very, I created it very specifically. It's, an, it's for a product that doesn't exist, but it's a product that everyone understands. So it's a self-driving car. How do you generate test drives for a self-driving car? Yeah, it's a beautiful brief to work on. And I deliberately created that brief because people could not then think of, oh, Mercedes did a brief just like that. They did an ad like that. And you could do a bit like, so, so it, it gets away from the, the problem of, of, of theft of other ideas, of plagiarism. So I know the ideas that people come up with. I've seen hundreds of, of responses to this brief. 80% of them are very, very similar. And I decided that I would take this brief and I would give ChatGPT in a brief the same amount of information I give humans. So it ended up being, you know, a really long paragraph of information that I give people. And so I'm giving it context, I'm giving it an understanding, I'm giving it the, the information about the, the target audience that I'm after. And I asked it to come up with five concepts. Two of those concepts were concepts that I see all the time coming from humans. Now you might say, oh, so it's not come up with anything original then. Well, actually, people don't come up with anything original. That's the whole thing that I'm seeing. People come up with this idea a lot. ChatGPT came up with the same ideas. So that was two of the ideas. Three of the ideas I had never seen before. And all of them were workable. All of them could have been developed into something great. Now that, I didn't expect the, the results to be that good. But this was purely from giving it a brief as good as you would give humans. And it came up with amazing stuff. I mean, it, that's stunning and shocking at the same time because if the l language models have been learning from everything that's ever been created on the internet then clearly it's generating ideas it's picking up from somewhere yeah which is exactly which is what going, humans do going beyond the ability of humans to conceive of ideas well humans are input process output yeah. machines just like any other computer or, or, or system that we create Input, all the stuff that you've ever seen, all the stuff you've got in your mind. And humans actually really respond to the stuff they've seen most recently. So you've, you've got all that information going in, and then you've got your processing. And creative people tend to think, well, my mind is, is, is special. I'm a creative person. Mummy told me I was special. Mm -hmm. so, so they think that it's all to do with the power of their brain that makes them special. But it's not. It's the input. The input is what feeds the output. If you've got narrow input, no matter how good your brain is, you will have narrow output. If you spot things that no one else spots, you can come up with ideas that no one else can come up with. Which now, is why curiosity and creative is so powerful. You yes. need to explore everything from just random articles you see to museums yeah. to, you know, So history. the most creative people that I have met are insatiably curious and they've just got really broad input. The thing is that ChatGPT is almost infinite input. It's processing, it does what humans do, where it will t learn from this, take a principle from that, and it will smoosh it into something new. And that's what an idea is. It's a smooshing of things that already exist. So this idea of originality, humans are not original. Humans, I can tell you from departments I've run, are hugely derivative. The amount of plagiarism that I have seen over the years coming from humans 
It's shocking. But it goes back to Picasso's sort of genius steals. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> that's really what, what has been happening through the history of creativity. And, and if you talk about the history of innovation, all great innovations are essentially some form of derivative progression from some other idea, piece of information, content, creation that they've seen before, that where connections are made that other, where others don't make those connections. So are we just seeing the evolution, the natural evolution of, of creativity? And this is the great opportunity for humans is to embrace it. And where real progress will be made, surely, and this is my assumption based on what you're saying, is where creatives will embrace this technology, this creative technology themselves, and then work with it to take ideas even further. Absolutely. So exactly what you're saying is that a new idea is, is very often it's a spin on an old idea, or it's two different things coming together. People will often say that the most uh, disruptive piece of technology in recent years is a smartphone, which is just a, a telephone device and a computer smooshed into one. So, you know, we, we, smooshing is a, is a very, not a very technical term, but is, is what we do. It's how we create ideas. And I think that AI is going to help us achieve stuff we've never been able to achieve before. As you're saying that we're, we're redefining creativity. Creativity itself has already changed from what it used to be. So the ancient Greeks used to believe that painting was not creative. It was not art. Painting was mimicry. It was copying from nature. They did not see it as creative. And we know if so you do a did, Google search. What did, the, what did the Greeks see as creative then? Well, for them, was, there was poetry and there was oh, thinking right, yeah. and dance uh, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So, so if you look at the muses, uh, yeah. the muses were looking at those kind of things. And you've got our modern understanding of creativity where people believe now, this is the interesting thing that I'm seeing, it's really screwed up, where people believe that creativity can only come from humans. It's almost like this, this screwed up thing that we had, that, that consciousness is something that is only in humans and not anywhere else in nature. And anyone that has got any intelligence now understands that there's degrees of consciousness throughout animals. Creativity is this bullshit term. I'm embarrassed of it. In my book, uh, How to Get to Great Ideas, in the first page, I actually censor the word creativity, saying that I wanted to censor it throughout the book because I find it more unhelpful than helpful. It's got more misunderstandings than being a path to help people come up with ideas they wouldn't normally have. Another thing in that book is in one of my chapters, I only sort of found this a couple of months ago, I, I, I foretold what was going to happen with AI and the, the evolution of creativity and said that the future is collaboration between humans and machines. Because we've been getting increasing collaboration over the years. If you look at academic papers, journals, you'll find that the articles in there, there's 10% more collaboration every single decade. So you're getting more people involved in, in each of these papers every decade as you go. And I said that this collaboration is now going to move to us collaborating with machines and, and that's exactly where we are now. And the way that I've been using ChatGPT and, and AI, and the way that I recommend that my clients use it is not to just try and replace humans and, and, and you know, sort of save money. This sort of rationalization approach Instead, it's to use it to, to help humans achieve more than they could ever achieve. Because one, if you're looking at saving money, yeah, you're, you're going to start losing quality over time because AI 
excels at adequacy. Mm. Well, it won't create, if we think about innovation and disruption and Clayton Christensen's great book, The Innovator's Dilemma, Yeah, saving money isn't going to create competitive differentiation. It's a race, exactly. as you said yourself, it's a race to the bottom. Yeah. So the real opportunity is how do you embrace a new technology to disrupt a competitor? And that's the real opportunity of the times that we're living in is to take this, this new innovation. I just want, before carrying on with that, there was something you said to me, and I, I've got a couple of friends that are photographers that are deeply concerned about the impact on photographers and you know what happens to that industry with the generative power of, of these platforms to create imagery that's so lifelike, it's almost imperceptible as being generated. Well, yeah, it is. Totally. But you, you talked about what happened in the <laughs> early days of photography. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to bring that up and to remind people yeah. again of, of how humans naturally evolve when the new technologies emerge. Yeah. I mean, in 1820s, they started to develop the, the, the chemicals for photographic printing. And the oldest surviving photograph is right here in this city at the University of Texas. And that was in the, the 1820s. Now, what happened, it was around about the 1850s, we started to get decent photographs coming out. They, they still had long exposure times. So you're, you're still, you know, in the, the 1830s, 1840s, it was still about 10 minutes exposure time. But by the time you got to the 1850s, it was getting down to maybe like a couple of minutes that people had to sit in front of a lens. And at that point, artists, started to complain about photography. And they were saying exactly the same things that people are saying now, is that it, without like the human soul that's put into this image, it just can't match. And it's just like the whinging we're seeing from uh, creative people right now looking at AI. It's exactly the same. And what happened was photography got really, really good by 1900. And artists at that point, up until then, had been trying to go for photorealism. So they'd actually been using lenses and mirrors and all sorts of things. So Rembrandt used mirrors to be able to project onto his canvas and trace to get really photorealistic stuff. And this was developed in Belgium in the early 1300s when there was a guild of mirror makers and painters. It was the same guild, mirror makers and painters, because it went in a frame. There was a picture in a frame. And in the early 1300s, mirror makers started to develop convex and concave lenses, uh, sort of mirrors. And there's a thing you can do with a shaving mirror. If we were to get the, the image outside there, because it's darker in the room than it is there, we could use a shaving mirror to take the image that we've got outside the window and project it onto the wall. Just a shaving mirror, that's all you need. And that's exactly what the artist would do. So they were using photographic materials already to become increasingly photorealistic. And then by when photography totally took over the photorealism, seeing as it was photography, artists then in 1905, we started to see fauvism and we started to see expressionism, 1905, 1907, we started to see things like modernism coming out, cubism. Then in the 1920s, we get surrealism, we get Dadaism. And these were non-photographic approaches to art. And that's exactly what is going to happen now with AI. As AI starts doing some things that artists and humans thought was, was their domain, humans are going to reinvent new ways of doing it. 
that AI cannot do. And that, to me, I think is incredibly exciting. And I, I wonder how quickly humans will pivot to whatever this new form of art that they create is. So I'm, I'm actually quite excited about the future rather than seeing it necessarily as a threat. But of course, in the meantime, there are people who will be disrupted because that's always what happens. When the, when the Luddites started smashing up the mills, they were smashing up the mills for a reason. And the reason was absolutely true. This was stealing their jobs. There was going to be less employment. There was less for them to do. They were going to have to do something else. And they were complaining about that. And that's exactly where we are just now, where some of the, the concerns that people have are absolutely true. They're absolutely right. And people will have to adapt and have to pivot. But if you try to avoid this and stick your head in the sand, that's when you've got problems. So if you were counseling people today, whether they be in creative industry or they be, let's say, a surgeon, a dentist or a, a lawyer, what would be your advice to them, aside from watching your LinkedIn learning course yeah. on prompt engineering? And, and hiring me as a and consultant. And hiring you as a consultant, <laughs> of course, yeah. But uh, you've got, I know that you've got your, um, you've got a, a I say call it a model mm. for how to approach it. I think you've got an acronym you use as well. Yeah, well, certainly the prompt writing, I've got the CREATE acronym. So, so writing a prompt, it's not just one sentence and there you're done. That's what people have been doing and these people are then commenting that it's just not as creative. No, no, you just give it a crap brief. <laughs> so the CREATE framework is the character. So tell the AI the character you want it to play, the role you want it to play. So, so you are an expert uh, marketing strategist with 25 years experience in positioning brands for the right audience. So that might be your first thing for your character. Then you've got your request. So it's what you're asking from it. I want you to give me insights about the needs and desires of this target market and what would persuade them to buy this product. So you, and you have to give it lots of information there. Then you've got E, is examples. You can give it examples and you just sort of open quotes, something a bit like this in quotes, do, 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 examples. Then you've got A is adjustments. So you... It'll come back with some solution. Yeah, it will come back with something. You go, ah, that's not quite right. That's, yeah. And you don't just then go, ah, that's rubbish and sort of close the lid of your laptop and storm off. You go, right, how would I adjust that? Rewrite the prompt, put that in, say, this time, please don't <laughs> do this. Then you've got T is your type of output. Now you can get scripts, you can get it to do tables, you can get it to write code. There's some stuff that I've, I've done where you, I've got it to create mind maps for me. And the type there is, is I get it to write the mind map in a particular kind of code that I can then take that code and import it into a mind map software and boom, I've got the whole thing. So it will do that. And then you've got E is the extras. And these are just little things that if you add into the prompt, it supercharges it. So I collect these little things that you can add into prompts that just make things so much more powerful. So that's kind of like a framework that I've taught in the course. And it means that you're writing a paragraph, not a sentence. And it is this whole thing where you want to make sure that you're giving as much information as you would give a human. But the other side of it is most people are going about this wrong, expecting they, they don't understand how their own mind works. They don't understand their own processes. So they'll say, 
write me a blog about, uh, about the health benefits of cat food. But when we're writing a blog about that, we would do subtasks. It would be a bunch of subtasks, not one task. So we would go, right, I'm going to research this. I'm going to come up with a point of view for this. I'm going to then work out what my different ideas could potentially be. Then I'm going to write the bullet points of the content that I would want to be in there. Then I'm going to write a first draft. Then I'm going to edit that. So, so you've got all these subtasks. And the way to do it is not to try and write a prompt that does everything. It's to write prompts for each of those subtasks and to work out, is that subtask something I do? Is it something the AI does? Or is it something I do in collaboration with the AI? So when we understand the way we work, it's much easier to work with AI in the most effective way rather than putting some crap prompt in and expecting magic back because that's just not what's going to happen. Yeah, there is something, I think, anyone that's new to it, the, leaving aside the, the name artificial intelligence, which feels it's outdated, there should be more augmented creativity or something like that, technology. They're all great, as you go back to your friction book, all great output, all great effort, all, any great piece of art, creativity, engineering takes work and effort and time, therefore friction. There's friction here as well. And I think everyone that's maybe playing around with it, gets frustrated with it, tries to make it frictionless and quick and effortless. And it's not that. And I think that's a great insight of what you've been doing is building an understanding and appreciation that this isn't easy. It's like anything else. It takes learning and it takes skills and it takes creativity yourself to accelerate the creative, creative output of this technology. So the way I'm, I'm most stuff that I do with ChatGPT isn't actually that much faster than me doing it myself. But what I use ChatGPT for is to help me achieve even more. So, for example, I, I can do a bit of coding, you know, it's a, I, I speak fluent HTML and CSS, but in JavaScript, I really only know how to order a beer and ask where the toilets are. You know, I speak pidgin JavaScript, but I understand JavaScript when I read it. So, I've had some ideas for some tools that I don't have the coding licks to do. And I've looked online and I can't find the JavaScript to hack to get it to work for me. So I thought, I wonder if ChatGPT can help me actually build these tools. So I described exactly what I wanted. And the first prompt, I get the code. And there's a working prototype right away doing exactly what I wanted. And then I'm just doing backwards and forwards saying, now I want you to help me design the page. At that point, it starts creating the CSS. And I, I, I built, I built tools now online because I, I just create these creativity tools to help people generate ideas they wouldn't normally have or think in different ways. And yeah, it's, I'm, I've been absolutely blown away that it can help me do stuff that was never previously possible because I didn't have the skills, but collaborating with ChatGPT, I'm able to share those resources. I'm able to take their skills and then feedback. And, and it's totally a collaborative process that ChatGPT couldn't do it without me and I could not do it without ChatGPT. And it just reminds me from working in advertising at those moments when I was in a really good team, that we bounced stuff off each other and one and one equal three. And that's exactly what I'm getting with ChatGPT. You talked about the Quake framework. You've got another acronym 
that you advise clients on. Are yes. you able to talk about that? Which is this, the MAD, yes. the MAD framework. Yeah. So Crates is a way of writing prompts where you are telling the AI the role that you want it to play. This is like, you are this, you are going to do this. And the MAD framework is one that I sort of developed recently was, I wanted to see if I could turn it 180 degrees and make it all about the user. So it's very simple. You've got M stands for me. So you say, this is who I am. This is my needs. This is the context round about me. Then you've got the ask. This is what I would really like you to do for me. This is what I would like. And, and then you can be very specific about saying, I, I, I'm, I'm wanting this, 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 this. You know, I'll just give bullet points of what you want from the, in, in your request. Then you've got D and that's the delivery. So actually, this is what I want you to deliver. I want you to deliver it as a document. I want you to use markup so that it's got bold and underlines and all sorts of things. I want you to write a 150 word introduction and then give me a table that does this. You know, that's your delivery bit. But it's, I'm finding that it, it, this approach, if I'm finding that, that one way doesn't work, I can try the other. So if the create framework isn't quite giving me what I want, which funnily enough, almost always does, <laughs> but I can use the, the mad framework instead to make it all about me. Here's who I am. This is what I need. I, it's kind of like opened up the way that I, what I'm expecting from the AI, my, my relationship with it. And, and that is always good. If it's causing me, the framework's causing me to think in a different way, it means that what I do with ChatGPT will lead to different results. And that's always a, a benefit. You're a parent, and I know a lot of people working in education, innovation, are excited, but also frustrated at the slow progress of education systems and bodies to evolve. And I think we might even talk about it in the first interview we ever did. When you go back to the great Ken Robinson talking about how creativity is knocked out of us through the education system, surely today is the time that our policymakers, leaders must go through some great reimagination of the system to prepare our children for this world that is rapidly changing. What's, what's your perspective on that? And what would your counsel be to parents, given that you can see specifically the opportunities available? What would your counsel be to parents to help them direct and guide their children? I think parents probably need to learn this technology before their kids. Yeah. So they need to get an understanding of this. But the truth is, if kids are denied access to this technology, they will be left behind. And what we're finding is that a lot of people in education are trying to turn ChatGPT and other AIs into the enemy. And it's not. People who wanted to cheat would always find a way to cheat. People who were looking for the hacks and shortcuts always found hacks and shortcuts. Buying other people's essays and then just rewording it slightly or whatever. You know, it was always, it was always there. Um, so there's some education institutions that are doing a good job of this. I mean, we both know Connor Grennan. Connor, if you're watching this, hi, how you doing? And Connor is an incredible visionary at, at Stern Business School. And he's really getting it and he's exploring and he's learning new stuff. And I, I find him a real inspiration mm -hmm. in the world of education, the way that he has thrown himself into this so the much. The speed at which he has as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he's a parent as well. So he's finding that his kids are getting involved in it too. But I think that it's important for parents to get an understanding of this and not to fall for the fear-mongering in the press. Mm -hmm. 
Because what the press is doing is looking for sensationalism, and it's not difficult to find things to be sensationalist about, sadly. And, and a lot of the people who've been writing articles about, I remember there was one a few months ago, about ChatGPT tried to break up my marriage. <laughs> yeah. Remember that one? Yeah. And that was a journalist who was looking for something sensational and was going to goad this AI until it did something he could write about. And a lot of the journalists have been doing this. And that just creates fear-mongering and, and misinformation. And there's so much misinformation. The only way is to actually play with it to understand it and to play with it properly. And I've, I'm writing a book at the moment for kids. It's ChatGPT for kids. And it's educational, where I take all of the main subjects on the curriculum, and I then write three prompts, which help with the education of that subject. So for example, history, I've got one that I absolutely love. I, I play with it quite regularly. And it's creating a lonely planet guide for any time and place in history. So you say, right, Mesopotamia, 3,462 BC, and it will then write a lonely planet guide. So it'll say, here's a paragraph telling you about the area at the time. It tells you the people who are living there, the, what their lifestyle is like, the most important people to meet, what the food is like, the dangers in the area, the sights to see. It's exactly like a lonely planet guide to that, this point in history. And it just brings it to life. And I read these things, I, I explore different places like the Aztecs, and it's absolutely extraordinary. I, I, to me, it excites me about history. And I've, I've used this prompt with my daughter and she's just loved it, just coming up with places to visit. You know, uh, Australia, uh, a thousand years ago, there you go, Lonely Planet wow. Guide to Australia. Time travel. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Going back to the education system, and as you say, the fear mongering that's been generated both by the press and by policymakers and educators themselves, trying to make it the enemy, is nat natural if the system doesn't evolve because kids will find ways to hack the system to cheat, to make it easier, to remove the friction from passing their grades. Isn't there, isn't the need ultimately to say, okay, in the world of AI, you don't have to go through the traditional process of learning certain things that you would do traditionally in school. We could probably start to sit with a bunch of education and say, okay, this needs to go. You know, do you need to learn history? Do you need to learn English grammar? Probably, because if you're going to be a good prompt engineer, you need to have a good command of English. Do you need to know mathematics or arithmetic the way that we were taught at school to become, whether you become an engineer or a computer scientist in this world? Question, how much do you need to know? How much do you not need to know? Because there must be a lot of things we could dispense with and completely reimagine a curriculum from K through 12 in the US or primary school to secondary school in the UK. Yeah. Are you seeing any evidence of discussion or debate amongst educators about that type of mm. reimagination? Not that radical, not as radical as it needs to be. No, no. It's, I think if we were to totally reinvent it, education would look nothing like what we have now. We have to understand, you know, take it all the way back. What is education for? You know, it's, it's to prepare people. I mean, if you, if you look at it from an economic point of view, it's to prepare people to enter the world of work. That's the economic yeah. point of view. Well, industrial revolution onwards. Yeah. Yes. Or the Greeks might see it slightly differently. Yeah. Or, or it's to prepare people to be functioning adults contributing to society is another way to look at it. So if we define education as that, 
I mean, the, our term system is based on harvests and sort of farming cycles. So would we use that again? Because I know that talking to teachers, kids coming back after six weeks, two months of summer holidays, they, they can lose months and months of work that, that has been put in by the teachers. So should we be having that length of holidays for kids? The way that education is about is about saying that this is the way to do things. It's, it's, it's teaching people what to think rather than how to think, how to solve problems. I think if we were to properly think about this the way that, that we might, if we were doing an innovation project, education wouldn't look anything like it does now. It would be a very interesting pro process to do a design sprint yeah. with some education experts taken from mm. different sort of stages of the um, children's development and bring in some ev evolutionary biologists as well yeah. and mix it up and say, okay, we're going to do a five-day design sprint on what's the future of innovation, future of education. The thing is we have to work from where we are. So where we are today is the starting point. It's always nice to imagine with there not being a starting point because you can then imagine whoever you want. But from where we are, the education system, teachers have been mistreated and disrespected for decades. And they have now reached a point where they're getting paid less, expected to do more, and now you're expecting me to learn this. And that's why there's resistance. One of the reasons why there's resistance to like AI. And really, do I have to learn this? This is, and, and they're, because they're not, they've not been educated themselves and what the opportunities and importance of this is, they're not seeing why that should be part of education. Last week, I was talking to a textbook publisher in the US who's asking me if I can write a textbook. And I, and I was saying, I'd, I'd love to write a textbook for, for kids on, on here, here's ChatGPT, here's how to use it. And I say, we think you'll first need to write a textbook to educate the teachers on what this is about and how to teach it before you write a textbook that's designed for the kids. I can see the logic in that, but we know the pace at which this is evolving. And just imagine yourself, or I can imagine myself as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, curiously exploring this. You wouldn't hang around for the teachers to tell you. You'd be going... I mean, I, I actually can't conceive of what it must be. It would be like to be fifteen year old, fifteen years old now, uh, as a fifteen year old me, thinking about what's the future going to be like. I wouldn't be thinking about university. I'd be like, well, hang on a second. The opportunities that exist using this technology are so vast. Your imagination would be going off at an incredible rate. Yeah, absolutely. I I think education does have a role as when I, when I talked about this input process output, if you've not got an awareness of things, you can't use, them. you can't use it. So you at least need to have an awareness of what's out there. Then you can maybe Google it or use chat GPT, but without the, without the awareness of it, you don't know how to solve that problem. So I think there is a really important thing role that education plays is just letting people know what's out there, yeah. you know, different approaches. But it should be more about discovery rather than hammering the established information into young skulls. I think that discovery is the best way to learn. And, and using imagination is a better way of learning than using repetition or replication, I guess. But even if I think about history, it was always something traditionally in well, Scotland and English schools. It was You'd sit there and you'd hear about the War of the Roses and you'd hear about the battles between the English and the Scots. You'd hear about the Second World War. You'd learn about the American War of Independence. 
and the and the Civil War, and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I've got to remember these dates, and it was dreary and dull, and it was in the past, and it was irrelevant. But today, taking the example of what you've done with your daughter and going on these time travels using the Lonely Planet Guide, you could be taking kids back in time with generative video, going, take me back to the pyramids, take me back to the ancient Greeks, take me back to the Second World War. It's incredible well, the, the educational potential of, as you're saying, of the inputs that this can generate as well. I think the, the visual side's a little bit off at the moment mm -hmm. still, but yeah. it, will, it will get there, oh, yeah. you're absolutely Let's just right. Give it. I mean, there's other historic prompts which you can pick anyone from history, and it doesn't even have to be a famous person. It could be like a, a peasant in Middlesex in the, <laughs> in the year 840, you know, and you can have a conversation with them, and you can ask them questions, ask them what their life is like, ask them what's important to them. ChatGPT does a really good job of stepping into these characters and to me, that I would have loved it if history had been more about the kind of human stories, really bringing stuff to life, rather than just, right, remember these dates, remember these names. That's, that's not our, the way our brain works. I mean, memorization, humans are incredible for memorization, if we learn the skills on how to memorize. But were you ever taught how to memorize information at school? No, me neither. Why aren't we teaching kids? If you're expecting them to memorize information, why aren't we teaching them how to memorize? It makes no sense to me when there are techniques to do that. Yeah, but I suppose the teachers back then didn't know there were techniques for memorization. Yeah, you, just, I mean, you know, this <laughs> for us being at school, it's just hit, hit the child harder with yeah, a ruler. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, and just keep hammering it into them. Yeah, yeah. And remember this. <laughs> and, yeah, and some people remembered it, and other people didn't because yeah. the nature of their individual sort of brain and how it works. Oh, yeah. What else is exciting you at the moment? Mm, my goodness, I, I go in two different directions. I go to where the, the, the technology, the latest stuff is happening. And you know, there, there's tech stuff that's exciting me. I, I'm loving video stuff. So as, as a filmmaker as well, playing with the video stuff is fantastic. So I'm doing, starting to run some experiments with Gen 1 and Gen 2, which is a video, video service from Runway. And you can do text to video on that and you can put in a, a you can create a video so it could be a video of the two of us talking and then you restyle it so we show a picture of some clay characters like morph you know from from when we were growing up and it would then restyle our conversation with clay characters wow really yeah oh, it's God, absolutely yeah. Extra extraordinary or you could then put in like a portrait of Henry VIII, and then suddenly we would be restyled mm -hmm. as if we are in that period, wearing those clothes with the, the wigs or That's whatever. That's nuts. It, it, it's amazing, wow. amazing. Mm -hmm. So from that tech side of things, I'm really interested in that. But also, I then love really basic stuff as well. So with my art at the moment, just I love doing lino cuts. It takes so long. So Explain it's a bit that. like, woodcuts, but you're using lino. So, so what you're doing is you're taking a, a flat block and then you've got very special gouges that you gouge out the material. So you're leaving gaps. So some of it is still at the, the top surface area and then you're gouging out holes and gaps. Then you, once you're done, you coat that with ink, you put some paper on it and you, you bray it. You kind of like push it against the, the, the surface. You pull it off and you get a print. So, I mean, it's very, 
old way of doing things, you know, really coming from woodblocks. And it's, so I'm doing some woodblock stuff and I'm doing lino cuts and I'm planning to start selling my art in the next year. I'm getting enough stuff together to start actually selling it. And I'm really loving how long it takes. The process is so slow that for me to create like one of the portraits that I'm doing will take me maybe eight to 10 hours. And I'll be wearing these special magnifying goggles and getting in there with these tiny gouges, just gouging things away. And it's so meditative. For someone whose mind doesn't stop, for me to do this, it just, it quietens my mind. And I find it, it's my form of meditation. I, I'm looking forward, I've been hectic for the last three months without any time to do it. This week I'm getting back and I'm putting a couple of days aside just to do lino cuts. So I'm so looking forward to that. It's a very like 16th century kind of mm. <laughs> art approach. So if people want to be inspired and learn from your work you've done, where do they find your information courses? Well, there's, there's five Dave Burses on the, in, on the internet we managed to find. We all got in contact with each other a few years ago <laughs> and, and I own the internet. So I, I won yeah. Battle of the Dave Burses. So I'm incredibly Googleable. Mm. But you can find me on LinkedIn Learning. If you get access to LinkedIn Learning, you find my courses there. But also my website, daveburst.com. There's information up there, links to my courses and sort of newsletter stuff and things like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm very easy to find, but I'd recommend LinkedIn is where I'm most active. And then I've got my website, daveburst.com. Yeah. People can sort of learn about more about prompt engineering and yeah. frameworks there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, certainly look forward to the publishing of your art, continuing the learning journey with you on GPT-5, probably. Yeah. Uh, not too distant future. Yeah, whatever that does, and apparently it might have video in it. Yeah, that's going to be crazy. <laughs> and yeah, just looking forward to continuing the conversation down the line. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Always Dave. a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time.